0: Hello, everyone. My name is Bill Myers, William L. Myers, Jr., and I am the author of the Philadelphia Legal Series and the host of the podcast Writing Wrongs on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Today, I have the privilege of talking to Matt Coyle, award-winning author of the Rick Cahill series, about a haunted, hard-boiled private investigator, Rick Cahill. Matt, just so you know who Matt is, he has won the Lefty Award, the Anthony Award, the San Diego Book Award for Best Mystery, the Ben Franklin Silver Award, and he's been nominated for both the McCavity and Shawmus Awards. We're going to be talking about Matt's experience as a writer, the art of writing, and the Rick Cahill series, including the book Blind Vigil, which is the seventh book in the series published by Ocean View Publishing. Matt, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Bill.
0: So why don't you tell us how you got started writing? What was your original inspiration to become a writer?
1: Well, um, my father gave me, I mean, I, wrote, I read mysteries all my life. As a kid, I read, a uh, young kid, I read Agatha Christie, Colin Doyle, I really liked the puzzle piece mysteries. You know, you had black and white, right and wrong. I think to a young mind, that's very appealing. And then when my father gave me the simple Art of murder by Raymond Chandler, I started reading him Chandler. And there was a lot of gray in there and there weren't always the good guy didn't always win. And that really appealed to my, um, I don't know, my, uh, twisted teenage self. <laughs> and that really got me the path. Um, my dog, Angus is going to knock down the whole studio here. Oh, um, So I I got a degree in English from UC Santa Barbara a million years ago and uh, told everybody I knew that I was going to be an author, but I never wrote for, oh, 20 years.
0: What did you do in your previous life before you became a writer?
1: Well, I worked in the restaurant business for uh, 10 years. I worked in the golf business for 10 years, and I worked in the sports licensing business for about 16 years. I quit my day job two years ago, I'd written six books um, as, you know, working full-time. So, um, but I always wanted to knew, I knew that I wanted to write mystery after reading Chandler and others, uh, but, you know, I, fa- I found out that you had to become a writer, you actually had to write, and I didn't start doing that until my early 40s. It took me 10 years to get published.
0: Okay, so how did you, how did you actually learn the art of writing I mean other than reading the kind of authors whose writing appealed to you uh, it's a skill set and it, it takes years to learn How did you learn it?
1: It is a skill set and it does take a really long time longer than you think when you start although you mentioned and I did that I read mysteries all my life and I think it really helps that uh, I, re- I remember when I was writing the first the first draft of the first book that plot points kind of fell in organically where they're supposed to um and i think it's just from reading and reading but yeah you have to work the muscle i i was i got a degree in english uh which was good for working in the restaurant business which i did for 10 years um i took classes at the university of san diego university of california san diego extension Mm -hmm. which is for you know old people like i was at the time i'm not that old and um so I learned the, I learned the nuts and bolts and uh, then you just have to write and I write every day, although I just turned in my eighth book. So I'm not, I'm kind of cruising right now, but you, know, you have to write every day. You have to find it. And then what happened was I was working for a golf company. Uh, the fourth I helped put out of business in 10 years. And I saw the handwriting out, I saw the handwriting on the wall before we actually went out of business. And I said, when this thing goes down, I have to I have to write or I have to try to write a book or I can't pretend like it's something I'm going to do in my life. I can't pretend like it's actually a, a, a career goal. Or, uh, and so I did. I when the company went out of business, I had a little money saved up and I wrote every day for um, like six months. And I'd written the first draft. I thought it was a book. Of course, it was a first draft and it was awful, but I didn't know. And after that, I took these writing classes. But um, yeah, I, you know, it took me 10 years to get published. I, I write the Rick Cahill crime series. You know, mm-hmm. I am in first person. I just turned in my eighth book. The seventh book just came out, Blind Vigil, which is a great backdrop behind you. Thank you. Um, but, you know, I've been writing this character for 19 years. It took me 10 years to get published. And that's not that unusual. I think, you know, it's on the higher end, but not really that unusual. Yeah. You know, Robert Crace, I'm sure if you are a mystery fan, you know who uh, Bob Crace is. Uh, and he had, he famously said at a writer's conference, when I was at, he said he had 125 rejections for agents before, uh, he got published. I've had, I had over 75, I'm sure it, it rejects and ignores. So you have to, you just have to continue to do it. And it's clearly something you have to love to be able to get published. You have to love to be able to continue to do it every time, because there is so much um, rejection in it. I worked in sales for many years and that really helped me, I think, get a, a t- uh, tougher skin because there is so much rejection but you know i was when i was trying to sell golf clubs or, or sports licensing um balls and things they weren't rejecting me they were rejecting the company's product so it, it's still even even with all that experience i had as, as handling rejection it, it's a hard thing to undergo and you really have to celebrate the the minor victories that you go like a good rejection where they liked your writing but the story's not just for them you would take that that rejection letter to your writer's uh, group and say hey you know she liked my writing because right. you're if you don't and i'm not a very optimistic person if you read me you probably figure that out <laughs> but um you really have to find the the little the little stair steps towards your goal and they're out there and you just have to recognize them but yeah you mentioned it earlier it's working the muscle you got to work the muscle
0: yeah are you your genre more, more of now anyway are you more a disciplined outline writer or more of an organic writer? Do ideas come to you out of nowhere or is it really sitting there looking at the paper, looking at the computer screen and just forcing it out?
1: Yeah, like a bowel movement. Um, I'm glad you mentioned organic because I don't know where the organic writing term came from but i've used it i thought i coined it but i don't think i did it's been around well before me because it's a, it's a better way of saying messy and um mm-hmm. not very structured i don't outline i i tried over the first like i, I probably um sent in my first book which became um yesterday's echo of the first book in the series uh i probably revised it six or seven times and i tr- during those revisions and in between the revisions i would send out query ed, uh agents and, and get rejected and ignored um so i um i think i tried to outline a couple times and for me it just wasn't it was kind of a stunting experience um if you talk to mystery writers i think the ones i talked to over all my my life it's really been about 50 50 that half outline and half don't. which i thought when i first got into it with i thought man you had to outline i mean you You have to be laying clues down and all these different things, keeping track of characters and who did what, but half don't. And I'm in the half that doesn't, um, I used to have sort of a skeletal outline when I started, um, inciting incident. I mean, clearly I still have inciting incidents and then the ending, and then a few plot points along the way. Now I really don't even have plot points too much. I mean, I might just, depending on the book and I have a hazy idea or I have a direction for the ends to make sure I'm going somewhere. But for me, it kind of stems around um, the character. What's important? Uh, What is the actually what comes to me first are are that the main subplots for my character, Rick Cahill. What's he? What's he undergoing in his personal life? Um, Is he being? Is he physically disabled? Like in this book, Mm -hmm. he's clearly always mentally disabled. I mean, not not uh, a medical sense, but he's he's mentally stunted in some ways. So I try to find. I find uh, I don't really have to look that hard to find that that um, subplot, but then I have to find a, a through line because he's a private investigator, he has to take a case. Right. And sometimes the the, the uh, through line and the major subplot intertwine, sometimes they become a 2A uh, plots like in Blood Truth and the book that followed Blood Truth, which was Wrong Light. Um, but what I fi- when I was writing the last book I just turned in, I'm giving you a long-winded uh, answer, but I'm, I'm pulling facts out as I go.
0: Right.
1: I I learned to trust this process, this very messy process that rely on your subconscious. It'll be it'll be fine. You'll get there. And for some reason, after writing seven books, um, when I was finishing this last one, writing this last one, I just didn't trust the process for some reason. It really stunted me for a while. I couldn't Mm -hmm. I couldn't uh, find my way. And then I finally just realized, okay, here's you got Rick. He's got something going on. Just write him into a scene and then the rest will it'll happen. And that's that's really what did happen for me. But you mentioned um you know just like squeezing things out of your brain or do things come to you and things do come to me with each book and and i I call it dropping anchors this is something that comes to my subconscious and i'm not really sure what it means as it comes up but i put it in the scene i'm writing and then it'll become apparent to me as i go or it won't and i'll have to pull it up but I, i this is in the first draft i always very open to anything that my subconscious will throw at me in the first draft because most of the time, it gives me a great understanding of what I'm really trying to do with the book. And the, the best example I can give was in uh, my very first book, Yesterday's Echo, which is
0: right here. Um, award-winning, an award-winning book, by the way. Yeah,
1: well, thanks. Um, that I was probably, I don't remember what revision I was in, but I was going back and revising the first chapters. And a sentence came to me, which was, uh, the first time I saw her, she, I, the first time I saw her, she made me remember and she made me forget. And that made me realize that the character I was writing had a much darker backstory than I really knew at the time. And that's really one, where I wanted to go. I wanted it to be darker. <clears throat> but once I, that thing popped into my head, and it ended up becoming the first sentence of the first book. Once that, uh, I, got, I, re, uh, I got behind that, things. his backstory really opened up to me. The story, the story got darker. The, my understanding of the character got a lot better. So I really learned to trust my subconscious, the woman who used to run my writer's group, um, Carolyn Wheat, who actually taught classes that I took at UCSD as well. She always told me your subconscious is a much better writer than your conscious. And I, I agree with her. So I, and not an outline and not outlining, I'm very open to anything that pops into my head as I'm writing that first draft.
0: Right. That's let that, that takes us into the Rick Cahill series. Your mention of him as a dark character. Um, let's talk about the series first and Rick Cahill and then let's talk about Blind Vigil. Okay. So, so tell us a little bit about Rick Cahill. What's his backstory? What makes him tick? Um, what What is really driving this guy?
1: Yes, um, his backstory is he, uh, when the first book came out, Yesterday's Echo, he was seven years, I think, removed from being a police officer at, in Santa Barbara. He was uh, only been on the force a couple of years. He was married, and his wife was murdered. This is all backstory to the first book. His wife was murdered. He was arrested for her murder. He was released, never tried, released, but never exonerated, and thought for years, years and years, to be the guy who got away with murder. Still, still, uh, if not the well, still the main suspect really um, as the books progress. So he had that he had that dark cloud over him uh, with each new each new book, and. Whether he, well, he, I mean, read the first book. You might find out who killed his wife. You won't find out who killed his wife, but you might find out he did or didn't. But anyway, whether he killed his wife or not, he felt responsible for in many ways because of actions that he took the night she was murdered. And so he had that guilt um, that he was responsible in some ways for his wife's death. So when he became a private investigator, um, he's tr- constantly trying to redeem himself. When, with new cases, when he gets emotionally involved, He's looking to redeem himself. And um, also he has this kind of unquenchable thirst for the finding the truth, no matter the consequences. Mm -hmm. And he lives by his father's code. His father had been a a cop before him also been uh, uh, had a less than um, less than stellar exit from the police force thought to be a bad guy. He's passed. He's, he's passed away, but his, his, his uh, credo was, sometimes you have to do what's right even when the law says it's wrong. So Rick lives by that, unquestionably lives by that. So when you have that, and then you have this unquenchable desire for the truth, mm-hmm. and you become emotionally involved in your cases, um, you, can, you can make some decisions that you think are righteous that can really have bad consequences, and that does happen to him at times. And as he progresses through each book, he, he begins to wonder, especially in the last book, Lost Tomorrow's, you know, he still feels like he's doing the right thing, but at some point he questions, well, doesn't, don't despots uh, Mm -hmm. think they're doing the right thing? And when that bad things happen, don't they justify it? Is that what I've been doing? So he starts to question if he really understands or if he can really be, you know, what right and wrong is when it comes to internalizing these things. So that's where he is when Lost and when um, Blind Vigil starts. Not only that, I mean, the title of the book, Blind Vigil, Obviously, something's going on and something very bad happened and lost tomorrow is the book behind, the book before it. So he, he, he's a, he's a blind private eye as the, as the uh, sixth, seventh book opens.
0: Right. And let me stop you for he, a second. As he, we talk about character arc, yeah. you know, in a, one, in a standalone book, the character arc, you know, he starts out one way and ends up another. Or yeah. maybe ends up the same way, but, but goes through stuff. You have a whole series. Yeah. So if there's a character arc, it's going to be drawn out a lot longer. And you've mentioned that going into the going into the seventh book, which is Blind Vigil, he's starting to question himself. Is there any other way that that Rick Cahill has changed from the first book going into the sixth book? And if if there's something that you yourself didn't know about him when you first started writing him, that only became clear to you as you put him in all these situations, let us let us know what that is.
1: Well, um, he he doesn't change. He that's the you know there's evolution, there's devolutions. In some ways, I felt as each book progressed, he devolved a little bit because of the my my um, thought when I was when I realized I was writing a series probably I don't know in the fourth revision of the of the first book I realized hey I'm writing a series cuz there's more to explore about this guy whatever happens if I never get published or if I do get published um and I realized that there's with each the the the, the goal I wanted to have is that every every bad decision he made um, that re- resulted in either physical, f- physical or emotional um, scars, they carried over. You can't run away from them. You know, if he gets, um, if he gets his knees hurt in one s- run scene, he's got, I got to remember that knees hurt throughout. If he's carrying some baggage from a book before because of decisions he made, they all matter. So he carries all that. And it's made him with each turn, it made him into a darker character. I didn't really expect, it to go I didn't expect it to go as dark as it is he's not I mean he's not a bad guy Um, he's done some things like he's uh, um, you know he does what he thinks is right no matter what the law says like his father's credo but he but he's still I think in most readers eyes a good guy but he's clearly he's a darker character than I ever expected and so with each book it's almost a devolution that he's gotten a little darker however I do see it kind of as a a, um, roller coaster there's ups and downs in terms of his uh dealing with matters in his own soul but um but also something else happened in the um second book that carried on is that i introduced the character moira McFarlane, who um in the second book i needed a private eye that somebody else hired rick to take the case from her unbeknownst to him and she this little sawed-off <clears throat> character with a big attitude steps into his life. You know, who the hell are you to steal? Like, hey, I don't know who the hell. I don't know. I don't know. I didn't mean. I didn't do anything. So she and they had end up having to work together a little bit. And then I really liked this character. I always wanted Rick to be completely a lone wolf. No, um, no Superman sidekick that could pull him out of uh, bad situations. He couldn't be a Superman himself. He had to deal with the the, the bad decisions he made. And uh, never wanted to have a sidekick. And then she came along and I used her in the second book for just a couple things. And then the fourth book, I had her for one scene. I, I intended to have her for one scene and she just completely, she just really spoke to me and was a, was kind of the um, conscious of the whole book, Blood Truth. She's after a, that, she's, she's, been every, she's been in every book. I'm sorry?
0: The, she's a firecracker. In blind, yeah. hood, I love her because she's. Well, thank you. I love her blind, too. She's tough. And you can tell that, that obviously she and Cahill like each other, or at least they respect each other. And you yes, can tell right. there's a backstory. Um, and I like the fact that when she's kind of trying to be a little nice to him, he's uneasy with it because he's used to her being so tough on him. Yeah. I, one of my favorite lines in the book is she says to him, you're still an asshole Cahill. That hasn't changed. And yeah. so you can tell what kind of what's going on between these two.
1: Yeah. And what that really stems from in the book is that he's blind and he's doesn't want when he hears in her voice, because obviously you can't see. He hears she still has an attitude towards him, but he also hears, is that pity I'm hearing? Yeah. I, I, it's a little it's a little softer than I, and that really bothers him. I don't want to be. Pitied. He doesn't want to be pitied. Right. And so because he's dealing with this new um, this new life, these new vulnerable, more vulnerable than ever. He's always been uh, emotionally more vulnerable, but now physically vulnerable. Yeah. He, he doesn't want her. He wants her to be just as nasty as she's always been to him. They have kind of a brother sister relationship. And I guess that's the relationship. I have with one of my sisters, at least a nasty yeah. one. Um, so I love They them
0: play all. off each other very well. Yeah. In, in blind vigil. Um, so let's why don't we set the book up? Um, you've mentioned that going into the book, he's blind. Um, can you can you just tell us how he got blind, and yeah. then tell us tell us how he has to team up with Moira?
1: Yeah, like spoiler, uh, he ends up losing his eyesight at the end of Lost Tomorrow's. And at the even before he was blinded, he was as I mentioned, he's beginning to question his sense of right and wrong. He was, he was, he was, saying, I don't want to be a private eye anymore. People get hurt when I try to do the right thing. And I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want that responsibility. So that's where he would have been anyway, but now he's there as the book opens, he's, um, has a handicap, he's blind. And he's also the, the, the strange thing is he's lost his eyesight. He did solve or, or the, the truth of, uh, I'm trying to give Angus a pill. The truth of what happened to his wife he found out in lost tomorrow so there's that whole arc was finally closed right. so as this book opens he's in a newer place he doesn't he's not really carrying the guilt from before he knows the truth about what happened to his wife and he's actually in a good he's in a, a healthy relationship which he's never really been in with a woman on the page of the book uh, any books I've written he's had ex-girlfriends but he hasn't really been in a good relationship and so he's also now she lives in San Diego and in Santa Barbara Rick's from San Diego because her business is up there, and uh, he doesn't even—he's not even working right now. He doesn't know what he's going to do, and so, but he realizes that every decision he makes now—it's not just him and his dog, his, his faithful dog uh, Midnight. It's uh, Leah, someone he he loves. So if he makes bad decisions, they could ref- they could uh, it, you know hurt her as well. So he's trying. To, he's kind of floating around, and Moira um, contacts him and says, "Hey, um, I need help with this case." And he said, "You know, I don't I don't do that anymore." No, it's just all you. I want you to do is I want you to sit with me when we talk to your old friend, uh, Turk Muldoon, who's mm-hmm. in earlier books. And he and Rick had a fallout, but they used to be best friends. Yeah. And she, all I want you to do is listen to his voice. And if he's telling me if he's being truthful or also is there something else going on? Because she's she, he has hired her to check up on his girlfriend um, to spy on her to see if she's fooling around, which to Rick is like, what? Because Turk is every time, Turk probably had all the t- years that they worked together in the restaurant, which is, I think, eight years. Turk probably had 15 girlfriends. I mean, uh, he never was that serious. Good guy, but never, you know, he ne- lose a girlfriend or end a relationship. He just go on the next one. But not, the idea that he cared so much or, I don't know, cared so much was, you know, so involved that he, he had to hire a private detective was something new to Rick. But he goes to the meeting and he listens and um, things ensue and he becomes entangled in this case. And once again, here's the thing is that, once again, he he's thinks with decisions I make, even though Moira's running the show, information I give her, decisions I make could end up hurting people. But then he also realizes that I've I've been trying to figure out what I wanna do, this is what I wanna do, I can't help it. I, finding the truth is what I was meant to do. Um, trying to help people, even in my broken way, is what I was meant to do. And so he's, but he's also got his his, his girlfriend who's, you know doesn't want him to do that anymore and is trying to set up a whole new life for him in santa barbara so there's that um there's that dichotomy as well going on
0: one of the things that i thought you did just brilliantly in this book is you weaved conflict into every relationship he has massive conflict with turk massive conflict with moira conflict with his girlfriend Um, it seems like in this book he's, he's trying to help his friend and yet the friend is fighting him every step of the way. Yeah. Moira comes to fight him and, and hate him even though she brought him into the case. And it felt to me that the whole time Rick is trying to do the right thing, he's walking on eggshells and his friend Turk thinks he's, he's being an ass. Moira thinks he's being an ass even though what he's really trying to do is is save both of them. Um, is that, I mean, obviously you you intended to do that. How hard is that? I mean, how hard is it to create a story where you have so much conflict between all the characters that are involved?
1: Well, they say write what you know, so I don't really find that hard. <laughs> um, Actually, I don't I don't really find the conflict that difficult. What I have to do is make it believable because you want conflict, you want tension on every page. And unless you're writing a thriller, a hard, you know, a really hard charging thriller, whether it's life and death situation on every page, to have tension, you need to have relationship, relationship tension or, or perhaps internal, obviously a lot of internal tension, and tension rather. Um, so I, it's for me. It's not that hard to write, and but I have to make sure it's realistic. And I and the other thing I have to I really have to be conscious about is not make Rick too much of a jerk. Um, now, fortunately, you're able to see inside his soul. It's in first person, so you can see some of the reason, some of the reasons he makes decisions. He does, and to him, they're all you know thought out. But um, to have so much tension and mm-hmm to try to keep him likable and the other characters likable. That's the challenge. Um, the tension part, it's just kind of built, I don't know. It's just kind of built in for the, for the way I write. And and to have a character like Moira, it's, you know, she's Rick's just, <laughs> she, I, I've said she's got four sides. Rick's got three and she's the balancing part. She right. Rick is, you know, Oh my gut, I'm going, I'm going with my gut. Well, she thinks things out. He's actually the more emotional in terms of, um, decisions he makes on cases than she is so mm-hmm. she softens him some way so there's that there's always that tension between the two of them when they're working a case of rickley hey boom let's my my gut's tell me this i'm going no just hold hold it back there cowboy mm-hmm. and the, the built-in tension here is that clearly something bad happens in this relationship with Turk and his um his girlfriend And Moira had said, I'm not even going to do it. She called, they call them domestics. I'm not sure what real private eyes call them, but I would think a domestic case being, um, you know, somebody fooling around on somebody else. In the last case she took, she um, investigated a um, wife for a husband to see if she was fooling around. She was, Moira reported to the husband, the husband killed the the wife and killed himself. And so Moira was like, I don't want to do these anymore, but I also feel responsible now for this woman who I don't even know. I just need you to tell me the truth about Turk. And then something happens and she thinks that R- Rick made a mistake that he didn't, his, you know, his gut wasn't good. And she, and she's already also upset with herself for not following her own gut, trusting herself instead of what Rick told her. Um, so that's, that tension was easy. Um, there's always, there's just, um, I don't know, as soon as I found out Moira's a character, I just felt like I knew the relationship they were going to have. And, um, you now with Turk, um, they were friends at one time, and then they had a really bad breakup, which is in... Uh,
0: in yeah, that comes, through, that comes through in the book. Yeah. You, looking forward, okay, looking forward in the series, do you have... I don't know. Do you foresee, and, do you foresee it ultimately as a redemption tale, or you just see him continuing this kind of moral struggle within himself. Where he does good things for bad reasons and bad things for good reasons. And it's just, it remains a struggle until the very end.
1: Well, as I was telling you earlier, before we went on air, I, I just did turn in the eighth book, which will come out, it's supposed to come out next 2021, November. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a constant struggle, although, um, there's also the meaning of family for Rick, and um, is, he, is he internally he has to wonder about himself, is he redeemable? So is that, that will continue on, but um, something else uh, happens in the next book that's completely new to him. He is also dealing with, um, I don't know if we wanna talk about what's next, but he's also dealing with a physical situation that um, is even worse than being blind.
0: Okay. All right. So the stakes the stakes get even higher.
1: Yeah, I found a way to make stakes get higher. Yes. Okay. I, well, hope, that's, I hope so.
0: All right. That's what it's all about. All right. Well, I think what we'll do is I want to mention that you're you're published by Ocean View Publishing, um, and I know they're good they're good to work with, and I'm glad you're you're publishing with them. Um, for everybody who's been watching. Um, you've been watching me talk to Matt Coyle. Uh, I am William L. Myers, Jr. I'm the author of the Philadelphia Legal Series. This is the podcast Writing Wrongs. Matt just came out with his seven book in the Rick Cahill series called Blind Vigil. It's a great book. I've read it, really enjoyed it. Matt, do you want want to uh, conclude by telling us what your social media credentials are? Where can you find your books?
1: I don't know if I have any credentials. Um, you can certainly find me on Facebook, uh, Matt Coyle, or I think. Um, if you want to see uh, pictures of my dog uh, doing couch yoga, you can always find Angus on the couch, different positions. Uh, Twitter, I know how to retweet things, Coil M, I think. Uh, and um, Instagram, uh, mcoil044. My website is uh, mattcoylebooks.com. My books are everywhere, you know. They should everywhere. I mean, you can get them at. Uh, your should be your favorite bookstore. And there's a lot of independent bookstores, you can get out now online, of course. You can choose Amazon. You can choose to get them from a, a independent bookstore like here in San Diego, Warwick's Mysterious Galaxy Book, Catapult, Barnes and Noble. Um, you know, I could go on and on, but yeah. Um, All right. Book just came out. of book just came out uh, a week ago.
0: Okay. Well, Matt, thanks for talking to me. I love talking to other authors, and I especially appreciate an author who's written an iconic character and found a way to carry him um, through many years. Again, thank you. Thank you for taking the time, and thank everybody who's watching this. This is William L. Myers, Jr., and you're watching the podcast Writing Wrongs. Thank you.